Hello and welcome back to Off Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. Today we're talking about one of Shakespeare's plays as a representation of history. Specifically, we're talking about Richard III, and even more specifically, we're talking about the BBC's 2016 production as part of the Hollow Crown series. Richard III ruled as King of England for about two years, from 1483 to 1485, and is probably most famous for imprisoning and possibly murdering two young princes who would have otherwise been ahead of him in line for the throne. He then went on to die at the Battle of Bosworth Field, which basically ended the Wars of the Roses. About a hundred years later, William Shakespeare wrote the play Richard III, first publishing it in 1597. For anyone who hasn't watched the play, the plot centers on Richard scheming his way to the throne and murdering basically anyone who stands in his way. Once he becomes king, he becomes increasingly paranoid and mad, even betraying his former allies before he's finally slain in battle. In the 2016 version, Benedict Cumberbatch headlines as Richard, and other stars such as Judi Dench and Sophie Okonedo also feature in key roles. I'm especially excited about this episode because not only can we examine Shakespeare's play as a representation of history, a representation of events that took place about 100 years before it was written, but we can also learn something about Shakespeare's own time from the play. To discuss all this with me, I'm joined by Ariana Ellis. Ariana is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto and an expert in both the medieval period and Shakespeare's early modern period. Her research is all about popular culture and executions in London and Venice from about 1400 to 1600. We've got a great episode for you today, so let's get into it. I'm very excited to be joined for today's discussion of Richard III by Ariana Ellis. Hello. Ariana, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what your research is all about? Yeah, of course. So I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of History at the University of Toronto. And my research focuses on the relationship between popular culture and public execution between 1400 and 1600 in Venice and London. So it's a dark topic, but an interesting one. It does sound interesting. It sounds yeah. it sounds neat. For today's episode, we are talking about the Shakespeare play Richard III, hmm. and specifically the 2016 BBC production that was part of the Hollow Crown series. So this series features various productions of the Shakespearean histories, and this one is part of the second series, which centers on the War of the Roses, or the Wars of the Roses. Yes. This production has lots of Famous people in it. You know, it's got Benedict Cumberbatch, Sophie Okonedo, Judi Dench, etc. And yeah, it was just like, at least for me, a a fun play to watch, but also one that I think will be interesting substance for our conversation because not only can we talk about how this represents the the period in which it was written, you know, Shakespeare's Mm -hmm. time, but also how Shakespeare was representing history, right? The, the, the events yes, of exactly. Richard III's reign about 100 years beforehand. For any listeners who haven't read or watched a production of Richard III, can you briefly mm-hmm. summarize the plot? And I'll just say now, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it. Yes, if you haven't read or seen it, you're going to find out what happens. Yes. Briefly to try to sum up, so Richard, at that point, Duke of Gloucester, soon later to be Richard III, 
is the youngest brother in a family, his older surviving brothers. And I'm only going to describe this as the starting point of this play because there's a lot of history before this. Mm-hmm. But his older still surviving brothers are George, at the moment Duke of Clarence, and then Edward, who's now King of England at this point, Edward IV. And they're the current winners of this long drawn out conflict between the Yorks and the Lancastrians, which was the Wars of the Roses. And they're from there, the Yorks. So they currently have won the conflict and they're currently sitting on the throne. So Richard III suffers from kyphosis, I think that's how you pronounce it in the play, which is commonly known as uh, having a hunchback. And he feels like the world has slighted him because of this, that he's being put to the side, he's being isolated. And you see in previous plays, he's very, very good in battle. He knows what he's doing, he's praised for it. But at this point, they're in peacetime. And he doesn't know what to do with that. He basically says at one point, if I can't, if I cannot prove a lover to entertain these fair, well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. It's very clear. He goes, I have, there's no place for me in peacetime. I seem to be valued in wartime. So I'm going to create problems on purpose is essentially his, his modus operandi. Mm. And so he starts to do that. And he slowly, he picks off his, he also decides he wants to get the throne. He wants power. He wants control. So he picks off his brother, George, that kills him off. He benefit. He then marries Anne Neville, who's a woman of power and money and influence. And he's also, he's the one who killed her husband that she loved dearly, but she still agrees to marry him. He benefits from his brother Edward's death when he dies. And he's, so the King of England has now died and then his son is supposed to take over. So he goes and takes advantage of that. And eventually with support, he takes the throne himself. He manipulates his way to the throne. At which point, you know, he's been charismatic throughout. He's charming people. They don't seem to know what's happening. And then he just goes off the rails and becomes extremely paranoid. He kills off his two nephews, who he unseated to be to be king. Those are the two princes in the tower, if you've heard of that story. Mm-hmm. He loses all the support that anyone ever gave him by suddenly withholding the gifts he promised them. By He loses the entire charismatic facade that he had. Yeah. And eventually he's unseated by Henry VII, who's a, an incoming claim it to the throne, defeats him in battle, and then he takes the throne and he marries Edward IV's daughter, Elizabeth of York, and merges the houses of Lancastrian of Lancaster and York to end the Wars of the Roses. And that's essentially the the progression of the play. Right. He's a really, really nice dude in this play. Richard, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You really want to be friends with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So obviously the the play has a basis in history, right? In yes. this the events are are roughly based on the events, and you know there are certain things that are are true. But I'm curious to think about how Shakespeare's play compares with the actual history of this period. Mm-hmm. What do we think is like pretty close to what actually happened, and what did he like, you know, fudge a little bit for mm-hmm. entertainment's sake? They're all very blended, and there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So some of the things I guess right off the bat, like the biggest one is Richard's appearance. And it's a blend. So for quite a long time, a lot of people that were supporters of Richard, either the Richard III Society wants to kind of rehabilitate his reputation. Anyone who thought maybe there's a kinder point of view to take basically thought, oh, well, that's most likely propaganda. Because in the Middle Ages, there was a lot of, uh, there's a very strong idea that the body could represent the soul. So that idea that if his, you know, if he was quote unquote, twisted in body, then maybe he was twisted in mind. So people said, oh, no, he probably didn't have any obvious physical disability. Most likely, this was just something that was made up. And then in 2012, they found his body in the car park mm. in Leicester, which you know made the news, and there was the whole burial and everything. Yeah, I remember and they, that. Uh, yeah, it was it was huge. I remember at the time. I've never seen the level pomp and circumstance. It was amazing. And yeah, they found that the he actually had very severe scoliosis. 
So he wouldn't have had any kind of marker on his back. There wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been any curvature, but he would have had one shoulder higher than the other, Hmm. but not so severely that you couldn't have disguised it with clothing, most likely, which is most likely what he did during his lifetime, in case anyone did think in that way of the body reflects the soul. Hmm. We don't know for sure, of course, but there aren't very many mentions when he was alive of any kind of obvious indicator that there was any physical illness or disability going on. So most likely he did make some pains to to disguise it. But also, you know, as the play says, the play indicates he has a withered arm, he walks with a limp. No indicators in the bones of anything like that. So all we have is the is the the curvature of the spine, which is extremely severe. Like it could cause a great deal of pain. Of course, we don't know how he responded to it because that's very individual, right. how much pain he was in. But it is quite a severe curve. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things, kind of the biggest thing that everyone, of course, thinks about first. In terms of some more of the political, I mean, the other big thing is the murders, really, because he goes through and he kills so many people. Right. And to go through this briefly, I mean, first off in the play, he kills his brother George, which did not happen. I mean, George was killed, but he was executed by Edward IV. There was a writ. There's some debate about how much of a a fuss Richard put up about it. I believe I remember reading somewhere that he did speak out against it and said, you know, please, we shouldn't be killing our brothers. But he didn't speak out that strongly. And frankly, neither did anyone else because George had been a real pain to a lot of people. So it's not that surprising that they didn't push back that hard. Hmm. And also when you have Edward IV talking about killing his own brother, if you are another brother, you maybe want to keep quiet to some extent because a lot of your power and land relies on that brother and maybe you're next, right? Right. So who knows? But he didn't have him killed. Hmm. So that was that was all Edward. In terms of Edward dying, he didn't do anything to hasten that on as far as we know. That was just natural causes. Hmm. And then there's Anne, his wife. And this is an interesting one because at the time... There were rumors flying around, flying around that he'd had her poisoned, and which is what the play reflects. Yeah, the Hollow Crown has him has him hiring people to beat her to death with a goblet, which I was not expecting. Yikes. At least that's what I got from the scene. But as far as I know, in the play, he, he's supposed to be having her poisoned or killed off in one way or another. And in reality, once that rumor went about, it's very very likely she died of tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. That's most likely. That's what scholars think happened. And. Yeah, in history, that rumor was flying about. And in a very uncharacteristic act for kings at the time, he gathered a lot of the, the nobles of the land and he publicly decried that. And I think the the text says something like he showed his grief and displeasure, which means that most likely he was crying when he said this, if there's grief involved, saying that no, he of course would never, he was very sad at the loss of his wife, he would never kill her. And also that he had no intention of marrying his niece. He made that very explicit and had people go through the realm saying that, like repeating what he'd just said and made some pains to to shut down anyone who was who was slandering him. Mm. So this was clearly very important to him. So no, it was most likely she died of natural causes. Hastings is another one, which is a really interesting one because it has some basis in, in actual historical truth. This is the scene in the play where Richard asks the Bishop of Ely to go and get him some strawberries. So he leaves and comes back. It's a slightly strange exchange. But then he finds a way to manipulate the Duke of Hastings into accidentally admitting he's part of a plot to kill Richard off through witchcraft, basically. And then he has him taken out and executed. And historically, yes, the Duke of Hastings was brought to a meeting and then was summarily executed afterwards on Richard's command after saying that he was out to kill him. And it was shocking at the time, especially since Richard had shown a great deal of interest in in fixing and revitalizing laws and adding adding ones that were fairer to the common people. Like he showed quite an interest in that. So this kind of behavior seemed, I think even at the time people were shocked about it. But there's also some people who are who are theorizing that because Richard acted, I believe as constable was the title at the time, 
that he could have seen it as almost kind of like an act of war. And then he himself is legally allowed to stand in as judge, jury and executioner. So mm. how that was framed, who knows, but it was not seen as a, as a great choice at the time. Right. So that does match the play. And then we've got the princes in the tower, which is kind of the big, the big name scandal. Yeah, I think this is the thing that Richard III is probably most famous for, other than maybe being found in a parking lot. Honestly, yeah, that rivals it now, I think. <laughs> yeah, but definitely I, I've been to the Tower of London and that's like a big part of it where you can go mm. see the place where he, or people say that he yeah. imprisoned these these boys, yeah. That one, frankly, if anybody says that, yes, he definitely killed them and anyone says, no, he definitely didn't, just it, both are wrong. It is impossible to know. Hmm. We just don't have the evidence, right? We don't even have the bodies. There are two bodies buried in Westminster Abbey that are alleged to be the two princes, but there is no evidence to substantiate that at this point. They were exhumed in, goodness, I believe the early 1900s, and they were subjected to whatever medical tests were done at the time. They got a general idea that they were from the time period, hmm. but that could range back to even like slightly classical periods based on the, uh, the work that was done, as far as I recall reading. So we can't definitively say that it's them by any means. We don't even know the kind of the, the gender or the rather the sex that the bones indicate. Right. And one of them did have to tuber- it have, they had some evidence of osteoporosis of the jaw, which indicates there's probably some illness going on if those if there were the princess. So there might be underlying factors going on. But either way, we don't know for sure. We do know he did take, I believe it was the oldest boy and put him in the tower. Which was actually it was customary for, for people who were going to be crowned. And at this point, young Edward was en route to be crowned. The idea was that Richard was the, was the protector of the realm because the king was a minority. He was underage. And he was going to be supporting him while he was still underage until he became of, of age. So you put kings in the, in the tower prior to their coronation. And he was on fast track to be crowned. And then, I mean, Richard even uh, printed coins that had both his his little insignia and Edward's insignia side by side. So mm. that seems like quite a statement to say that this is going to go ahead. And then all of a sudden, there's a huge change and this huge propaganda campaign to say that, no, actually, these children are illegitimate. And Edward IV was licentious and you know was morally corrupt. And Richard is the one who's going to bring kind of a moral goodness back to the realm. And that was his kind of his whole his whole basis of this, and it was a huge smear campaign, and that's what he based his his rule on, and someone saying that Edward's marriage was bigamous, so technically the boys couldn't inherit. Mm. And then Elizabeth Woodville, Edward's wife, and the younger son Richard went into sanctuary, and eventually she released the boy to him, and he was put in the tower with his brother. So at that, at that point, they were seen, you know, kind of having fun in the middle, in the gardens in the tower, and that kind of thing, and they were seen, because these were not prisons that they were put in, they were royal residences. But then they slowly disappeared from view and no one, ever, no one ever saw them again. It's So yeah, we just don't know what happened after that point. There just isn't enough evidence. I, I'm not going to say exactly what I think happened because there's no mm-hmm. point to that. But I would just say if it was in fact Richard, which it likely could have been, there seems to be something missing because for someone who is so intent on a propaganda campaign and seems to understand how rumors and words are important... He just let this kind of rumor about their death linger and didn't do anything about it, which seems like a huge misstep when your entire reign is based on propaganda. Hmm. So they think there's just more either that we're never going to find because they've been just, the documents have been destroyed or it was all done by word of mouth or the stuff's still defined at some point. Interesting. So the overall impression of from the play, right, is that mm-hmm. Richard is conniving to essentially yes. like murder everyone in his way to the throne. Mm -hmm. Once he gets the throne, 
he goes mad or maybe he maybe he was already somewhat mad but like he the play probably yeah he it sort of becomes more pronounced certainly after after he takes the throne there's like a there's at least in this production there's like a definitely like a a guilt theme Mm -hmm. and he starts betraying his allies as well and that sort of thing and then Mm -hmm. you know sort of gets his comeuppance at the end yeah and it sounds like based on what you're saying would it be fair for me to say there is some evidence he has this that he had this sort of like ruthless cut his way to the throne personality Mm -hmm. but that maybe people have taken like a couple of bits of that or Shakespeare has taken like bits of that Mm. and made it a much stronger character trait than we could historically say was the case is that fair yeah, I mean, it was definitely, I mean, just based on the evidence, because again, we can't say anything definitive about any historical person's personality, sure, right? Yeah. But just but just based on what's written, he does seem to have a, a ruthless streak to some extent. Like, mm-hmm. whether or not it's a cut your way to the throne streak, right? who knows what motivation showed up, who knows who was threatened, you know, he had a young family as well, who knows if he felt that they were at risk of being killed off when everything went down. So we don't know what motivations might have changed, but he definitely, I mean, he amassed a great deal of land, a great deal of power. Uh, land hungry is a is a phrase that some scholars have used to describe him. He definitely collected land. He basically by the end of it had like a had a palatinate in the north, which essentially is like a mini kingdom. So to to borrow a phrase in Game of Thrones, he was essentially an unofficial king of the north <laughs> in many many ways. But yeah, the north basically was under his command, and they knew him. And so yeah, he he definitely wanted and liked power to some extent. Right. Whether or not and and could be ruthless in battle for sure. But yeah, whether or not that translated into the personality that Shakespeare describes, I mean, you'd have to know him to find out, right? Sure, sure. Okay, so this reputation Richard has as a conniving, power-hungry, evil mm-hmm. person, is this a reputation that was pretty well established then by, by Shakespeare's time? Or is this something that Shakespeare created? So I guess we should clarify that mm-hmm. the... Events of the play are really taking place in the late 15th century. And Shakespeare yes. probably wrote this play, we don't know exactly, but it appears in the 1590s, so about 100 years later. So that, there's a long space of time between there. Yeah, probably about uh, 100 or so years, yeah. So yeah, was was this reputation something that Shakespeare created himself, or was he playing upon something that was already in the culture? I would say both. So we talked a little bit about how... Uh, when Richard was alive and on the throne, there were already rumors flying about about him murdering his wife and things like that. So clearly he was already dealing with some of these things when he was alive and well. And then when he died, you have chronicles immediately. I mean, you have Henry VII coming in, right? He's a Tudor monarch. He's a Lancastrian. And I mean, they no one wants to be seen to supporting the king that the king, the current king just killed, mm. right? Not to say, I mean, I know people say Tudor propaganda a lot with Richard III. And I mean... I don't think that Henry VII sat down and went, ooh, how can I go and face his name today? Like, I don't think he went and did that. But I do think that a lot of Chronicle writers, they want to ingratiate themselves with the hand that pays them, right? So they're not going to go and, and, you know, be friendly to someone that was killed off by this man. Makes sense. And one especially, John Rose, he was very complimentary to Richard when he was alive. And then he turned around and started saying that he was born with teeth and hair and was this monstrous person after he died. So... You see that starting to happen, and you see, and Thomas More was one of the ones that really pushed that. What was interesting because Thomas More wrote the history of King Richard III, and he's the one who also has a very has very very strong descriptions. Things like he was born with teeth, he was born with hair, his mother labored for a huge amount of time, and all these different things describes his his physical appearance in extreme detail, and clearly is very uncomplimentary. And Thomas More never published that; it was published after his death. So whether or not that was actually meant to be a real history or meant to be some kind of sarcastic kind of 
parlor write up for his friends. We don't know what the intention was because he didn't publish it himself. Right. But it inspired a lot of people. And Shakespeare was definitely partially inspired by that. Polydor Virgil's another chronicler, Hollinshead's Chronicles, Hall's Chronicles. They all kind of feed off of each other and they feed off of, of Thomas More as well. And then Shakespeare took all of that and added his own spin. Mm. And there were other plays that came before him. There's a fascination with Richard III, even at the time. Because before Shakespeare wrote, there was uh, Ricardus Tertius, written by Thomas Legge in the 1580, which uh, some people think was the first history play from England. Mm. Then there's The True Tragedy of Richard III in 1590. And then there's a thought that Ben Jonson might have written something called Richard Crookback in 1602, which was never published. So there's kind of a recurrence of this play over and over. So Shakespeare was definitely in good company and uh, both furthered this reputation because he focused a lot more on Richard's physical appearance than some of the other plays did. But he also just kind of built off the legacy that was already there for him. That's interesting that there's this sort of genre of Richard III yeah. plays. I, had, I would not have guessed. It, I mean, I guess, yeah, he makes for like a, a, a great character, mm. I guess, is the appeal. Yeah, he's fascinating. Yeah, he's got a, I think part of the reason for the appeal, too, is that he he's disenfranchised in the play, right? Like he's literally stands up there at the beginning and he says, I have been isolated from society because of how I look. And you can see later adaptations going through the centuries. I mean, in other, in other play adaptations, but much more modern, he's been made to be intersex as opposed to having a physical disability hmm. or, or gay as opposed to having a physical disability. Hmm. So there's always that sense of you could put some kind of disenfranchisement onto him and have him reflect it back. And he, partly, I mean, he's a villain in this play. He kills, he murders people, he murders children. But at the same time, especially early on before he goes really off the rails later in the play, there are places where you are allowed to sympathize with him and to yeah. kind of understand where he's coming from and, and see that kind of like Loki in the Avengers, honestly. There's that sense of like, no one seems to, to care about me, so I'm going to make trouble on purpose to try to see if people will. And then later on in the play too, he's given a moment, one of my favorite moments in the play, he's on the battlefield, night before he's sleeping, he's been visited by all the ghosts of people that he's killed off. And they've all said, they, in this kind of chorus of despair and die, they're cursing him for the next day. And he wakes up and he has this little kind of segment where he talks to himself, tries to tell himself, oh, no, I'm great. I love myself. And ends it with saying, I can't find any pity for myself. Truly, I hate myself. So there's a small moment of like, you know what, no matter what I tried to do to get love and attention to, to feel like I belonged here, it was never good enough. I really am a horrible person. So he actually sees it for a minute. It's kind of a very tiny redemption moment. He doesn't actually get redeemed, but it's like a moment of clarity. Mm -hmm. So there's a human. It's not just some kind of caricature Machiavellian villain. There's a real person that's hurting behind that. And I think a lot of people connect with that. That makes sense. I think the complexity of like having a villain that has a somewhat sympathetic backstory mm -hmm. is a character that really draws people in. I think people, mm -hmm. and maybe why this has remained a popular not just play, but, you know, a popular story in history yeah. more generally. I think with the play, too, he, part of it is he's he's also allowed to be angry. Like the first mm -hmm. half of it, he's very clearly angry. And I think people watching that who are going through something that they feel like they have to suppress their anger. They feel they can't show it because society won't allow them to. There's a section that you can kind of, it's a catharsis through that. It's before he starts to get really, really, you know, mired in it and do horrible things because of it. You kind of see someone going, you know, this makes me angry. People treating me this way, me feeling this way, it makes me angry. And you kind of go, yeah. And then it goes too far and you're like, no. <laughs> but you're already bought in at that point, right? <laughs> right. Okay, that makes sense. So one question I want to ask you about this play in particular, although 
you know, this might also apply to other Shakespearean histories, is how did Shakespeare research these histories? You know, obviously not everything in the play is 100% factual, as, mm-hmm. as you just said, but a lot of it, you know, it's based on real events. How did Shakespeare know what he knew about real events? I, I don't know. I've always wondered how in the 16th century do you do that kind of background research? Mm-hmm. I mean, mainly the stuff that he was basing it off of, right? Thomas More's writing, the chronicles were a big one. So, and Shakespeare loved his chronicles. He used a lot of the stuff from the chronicles. And of course, those have a very strong point of view. Oftentimes, the writer is writing for a royal patron. Uh, I believe Hall's Chronicles has this entire paragraph at the front to Edward VI, just going on about how amazing he is. So you can tell what perspective he's going to be taking right off the bat. Mm-hmm. But that's what would have been available too. And I mean, if you think about it, too, these plays are written what, late late 1500s, right? And the events took place late 1400s. If someone was there in their 50s or 60s, their parents might have been involved in this. Right. So they might have grown up hearing stories about this and then passed them on and you kind of hear them in common circulation. So, but I mean, who knows? That's all that part of speculation, right? Who knows what Shakespeare would have heard? But mm-hmm. in terms of what we know was available, the Chronicles are definitely the most, the most immediate source. Interesting. And... How would Shakespeare access the Chronicles? I'm not a medievalist. Is there a library he can go to where the Chronicles are? Or what? I mean, books were often kept officially. Well, at that point, it was getting the printing press had already been been invented, mm-hmm. so publishing was just was easier. Not completely accessible, but it was definitely easier. Pamphlets could be printed very easily. Right. That's why you get some play scripts being printed, and Shakespeare's works after his death were printed in that way. And, and Shakespeare could, of course, read and write. Yep. So he could, you know, he had access to those things. He was able to read them. In terms of public libraries, I would need to go and look that up myself. As far as I know, I don't recall anything. But you'd have books, you'd have bookstores and booksellers. And, and if you had access to some of the scriptoriums and in the religious institutions. Right. With Shakespeare, I think it probably would have been universities. Yeah. There would have been libraries in there, especially. I was going to say, I don't think there would be any public libraries. But I think no. at the universities, there would be... There would be libraries. Yeah. yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember reading about any public libraries, but university libraries, yes. Whether or not Shakespeare accessed them, I'm not certain, because as far as I know, there aren't any records about about where he accessed these works. But we just see similarities, right? We don't have his library card or like. If only, yeah. <laughs> that would be nice, or a diary. Yeah. That would be excellent. Yeah. So, as you of course know, but I'll say for the benefit of the audience, this sort of representation of history can tell us a lot about not just. Richard III's time, but also mm-hmm. Shakespeare's time. We can tell a lot about not just the history it's depicting, but the period in the society that created it. What can we learn about Shakespeare's society from Richard III? I mean, some things that we're, we could learn about Shakespeare's society are unfortunately lost just because of translation and pronunciation. There are some amazing original pronunciation productions of Shakespeare that I know the Globe does. Mm. And sometimes when that happens, just the way the words are said, you see body jokes or puns that show up that you wouldn't see if you're using modern pronunciation. So some of those things, you know, are still being unearthed. But I think the biggest thing you end up seeing is is the degree of interaction between the actors and the audience. I mean, Richard is talking to the audience for a lot of the play. Yes. So you see that kind of interaction and it really relies because you can't have someone doing the kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of style that that Richard III is written in without any response from the audience that could fall very flat. So you just have this sense that there is some kind of back and forth going on. So the fourth wall, it, it might have been there, but just not there in the same way that we experience it now. There isn't that you have to be totally silent and totally disconnected. There, there could have been some back and forth going on. Hmm. 
Oh, that still does happen. I've been at a, a play at the Globe where someone decided to shout at one of the actors, speak up. And uh, the actor proceeded to say the rest of a very intense, very aggressive monologue directly at that person. So <laughs> you could do it, but be warned. Oh, gosh, that's stressful. I, uh, I, I did some drama in high school mm-hmm. and we did a, a Shakespeare play once. And I remember, like, my thing in drama was not improvisation. My thing was mm. I prepare everything very carefully and then deliver it. Right. And that just sounds like a nightmare to me <laughs> to have to uh, improvise on the spot a reaction to the audience. Yeah, I have no idea if, they, if they've trained for that or anything like that, but they do interact with the audience. I've stood in the what's called the pit, basically like the standing zone for people that aren't going to be. The Globe has like an open pit where everyone can stand and then there's seats around the sides. So I've stood in the pit before and it was for Titus Andronicus and people came in and kind of split the crowd in half, bringing in one of the actors on a huge stand mm. to go and claim the, you know, the throne of Rome and had all their swords drawn and pointed at us. I may have dropped down into fight stance automatically to protect the person I was there with and didn't notice for a few minutes. But uh, yeah, that definitely didn't happen. (laughs) So thinking about uh, Shakespearean history like Richard III as a public representation of history, Mm -hmm. what sorts of people, but also themes, historical themes, narratives about history does it center and what does it obscure? Essentially, the question I'm asking is like, what is it, if you watch it, maybe not intentionally trying to learn something about history, but you're watching it and sort of learning something about history, what are you, what is the lesson it's teaching you? And maybe what is it not teaching you that a historian might feel like is a missed opportunity? I mean, I'm not sure if the play is trying to teach you a lesson per se, other than like tyranny is bad. Um. Yeah, I, I, I guess I didn't mean like it's intending to teach you a lesson, but what I mean by that is like, any sort of historical movie or TV show, mm-hmm. even if it's fictional, like people try to learn something about history. From what could you pick up from it kind of idea, right? Yeah. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people will watch John Wayne Westerns or whatever <laughs> and feel like they've learned something about the Old West, yeah, yeah. even though those movies are not accurate. Mm-hmm. The same, I think, is true of Shakespeare plays. I remember oh, in yeah. high school, we, at the same time in class, I had like a joint social studies and English class Mm -hmm. and we read Julius Caesar at the same time that we were doing ancient civilizations and that was intended to go together it's not always so explicit but like I think there are things you might potentially absorb from a oh yeah of course Richard III with this one I think and I I think this was partly intentional on Shakespeare's part too just based on the way that the plays are written and the, the preceding plays are written as well I think the horror of war is really a big through line through all of this, the destruction it causes. Hmm. I mean, the Hollow Crown adaptation definitely ran with that. The very last shot of Richard III is Margaret of Anjou looking up from the Battle of Bosworth battlefield and the camera just pans up and up and up and it's just bodies everywhere. Mm-hmm. Likely more than might have died at that battle, but it was clearly reflecting kind of all the lives that have been lost in the course of these wars. And you see that in his adaptation, in like the Holocron series adaptation of Henry V as well. But you just, you can even just see it in the dialogue. There's a lot of reflection about when I was younger, when I fought, there are parents losing children on the battlefield. There are discussions of honor and how much it takes and how much you have to claw to survive. It's, you get that sense of what does war leave you with? When you fight it, you lose people. And then some people like Richard III end up finding that that's their identity at that point and then what does that do to you how does that destroy you how does that remake you kind of thing i think when we see that you see that talked about 
But I think it also reflects how much Shakespeare's own society was was thinking about that. Because, I mean, they were only just over 100 years out of the Wars of the Roses, and that destroyed families for over 100 years, basically. Well, just under 100 years. But there are so many... He wrote some of his first plays. They're just written about this entire thing. Clearly, it was still very prominent in popular consciousness. People still wanted to hear about it. They were fascinated by the fact that they were born just too late to experience this huge upheaval that happened over and over and over at such kind of epic, sweeping proportions. So we see that kind of fixation with, it, especially in a period of peacetime. It's we're no longer, we're no longer in the war. I mean, I feel like it's the same kind of thing that we have now with World War One and World War Two, mm. with so many films and movies and, and documentaries being made about them. There's that sense of we just missed this, but our grandparents didn't. I mean, I know my my nonna, my grandfather, lived in Italy during the occupation. He was very young, and so I hear stories about planes going down, about different soldiers coming up on the shore of the beach, and. You just think that they were alive to see that, and this is someone that you're still able to talk to. So I feel you kind of feel the same, the same kind of phenomenon showing up with Shakespeare's plays, and and you see that kind of pattern repeating. Hmm. So that's that's one of the strongest through lines I think I see in the play. That's really interesting. I think that makes sense to me, but also, it's not like a, it's not like a social history of that. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, uh, experience. I think actually that that shot at the end, you mentioned where you, you sort of see like hundreds and hundreds of, of yeah. corpses. You know, I think that's intended to be a little bit of a thing about Richard and so forth as well. Sure, yeah. But it sort of has a strange impression because it, it's showing the, the toll for society at large when most mm-hmm. of the story is really fixed around these dukes and princes and the, yeah. the very, the high elites of society. Mm-hmm. One other thing that I think stood out to me that's interesting is that and I, I think you get this with a lot of representations of medieval history generally, mm-hmm. is that there's not really like any substance to medieval politics. Medieval politics is really about just people who are like constantly contriving to seize power from each other. <laughs> and there's no real issues that are happening in the background of that. I, I thought it was really interesting when you mentioned Richard was interested in legal reform. Yeah. Because... That doesn't come up at all in the play. I would never have guessed that. I just know that he wants to kill people until he gets to be king. Mm-hmm. So that stood out to me as something that, that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it too is, you know, sitting around. That's like the, the problem that happened with the prequels and Star Wars. Everyone's kind of like, I don't want to sit around and listen to a press conference. What is this? <laughs> that, I am that fan. See, me too. <laughs> I want to hear the press conference. Yeah. But I don't think that many do. And I mean, Shakespeare's catering to the masses, right? So he's going to talk about the the one meeting, the one political meeting they had where Hastings lost his head, not the one where Richard was like, hey, let's form a court of appeals, please. Right. So, yes. but he did, he did, was very interested in politics. It's one of those things, it's really, really interesting because for over a hundred years after his death, there were a number of people who, especially common, or common people who are, who are of, you know, lower social classes, and they would appeal to the government with laws that Richard created. And the government would say things like, why would you refer to his laws, this horrible tyrant king? And the people would say, I think the, the one phrase that keeps showing up a lot is, though he be wicked, he made good laws. Hmm. And that shows a lot because a few of the things that he did a number of things, but he created the basis for what I believe the name eventually became the Court of Requests, if I'm remembering correctly. Essentially, what that is, is for people that couldn't afford legal representation could go there and have their, their issues heard. Hmm. So he made sure that was accessible. What else did he do? He removed any kind of ban on printing to so make sure that books and, and knowledge could enter England without any taxation. He made sure that those who were arrested couldn't lose their property 
while they were under arrest, so it couldn't be seized from them. He also made sure to translate both his own coronation speech, and he was cr- he was crowned with his wife, which is the first time there was a double coronation for something like over 150 years at that point. So it was quite a statement to make. But he translated, I believe, both his, his coronation rights and... Oh, and some legal documentation into English because he wanted people to understand it. So it couldn't be in French or Latin, but he wanted people to be able to, to know what they were hearing and know the promises he was making. So there were quite a number, not to say that everything he did was great, but he did quite create quite a number of laws that were quite beneficial and not necessarily to his station in society that could be beneficial to those of quite a lower station. Interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. I want to see... The West Wing version of Star Wars. I would love the, to see the West Wing version of Star Wars. <laughs> you know, it's like Emperor Palpatine sitting in his office, I don't know, tinkering around with like trade policy and I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I love the behind the scenes of politics. Like I, I do enjoy the backstabbing and whatever, but I just, I love, I love to see them talk about writs and things and be like, yes, let's change the city this way. Let's do this to this thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, a more substantive question than, sure. than my Star Wars one. <laughs> Talking a bit about some of the choices in this particular production of yeah. Richard III. And I know you said you, before we started recording, you have some, some strong opinions about this. I do. What are, yes. <laughs> what are some things that you liked or didn't like about it? Something I really, really liked, both about this one and the entire series, honestly, is the way they, they dress the, the film. Hmm. Something I've noticed about the whole thing is that they miss the stereotype, which is great, of making the medieval period exceptionally dirty. Hmm. Kind of like what Mighty Python did, and I know they were doing satire, of course, but the whole, like, you know, they're doing the bring out your dead bit, and then yes. uh, King Arthur rides by, and the two peasants look at each other and they go, oh, he must be a king. And he goes, why? Well, he hasn't got shit all over him. <laughs> like, it's that kind yeah. of mindset, right? Yeah. And the Holocron doesn't do that, which I really, really appreciate. But they also don't go the White Queen route and just make the streets immaculate which also would not have happened. Mm-hmm. They managed to have a nice in-between up there. Some straw on the streets is a little bit of dirt. People look a little bit like they're working, but they're not completely, you know, covered in grime. The streets aren't full of refuse. Like, they find a nice happy medium to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do stumble at some points. I know a lot of the uh, medieval halls they use. It's very bare stone. There would have been tapestries everywhere. It would have been freezing cold if it wasn't like that. And it would have been nice to see more life involved in the Middle Ages a little bit. And they kind of throughout the whole series, to be honest, because even even when they're not showing someone who's a tyrant, it's still kind of the same. A lot of bare stone walls. Maybe that's just a budget issue. Like, I, they don't want to... I mean, they've got a fairly big budget. It's probably also a conservation issue. Like, they don't want to go and clothe every part of the, of the castle they're using or the church they're using. And maybe they can't alter the walls. There might be some regulations involved in that. That makes sense. But, it does, unfortunately, what that reflects to the viewer is the fact that the Middle Ages kind of is, are lifeless, right? There's a few tapestries indicating maybe just the house sigil. But there's, you know, there could be tapestries with Arthurian legends on them and these beautiful illustrations just covering everywhere, kind of life and color. But the Middle Ages is often depicted without color unless you're looking at stained glass. And that, that unfortunately, does come through a little bit in this series, especially in Richard III. It is, there is not a lot of color in life. I mean, they're trying to reflect somebody who is tyrannical, but it's set against a background that's very stark and tyrannical itself. So it it reflects that, but it also removes the kind of historical background that might kind of do a nice counterpoint to it. Right. I like that part. Have some reservations about the other part. Okay. I have feelings about the choices they made and how they adapted the character. Just let's hear. Let's hear your feelings. Let's hear it. Oh dear. This is your venting opportunity. (laughs) Yeah. 
I just I find the choices made in How Richard the Third was portrayed kind of removes what makes him interesting, frankly, which just sounds a bit damning. But I mean, he's meant to be a charismatic character. The whole point is that he presents one face to the audience and one face to the people around him, except for a few right. women who see through it immediately. Right. And I just found personally, I know some reviews did find that he presented two faces. I didn't really see that much. I found that from right off the offset, he just seemed like a bit of a petulant jerk to everyone, the audience and his friends included. That's a fair criticism. There's definitely, I remember that one scene toward the start. I, oh gosh, I, I don't remember all of the characters mm-hmm. who were in the scene, but early on, and he's like in a room with all of them and they're just, they clearly don't like him. Oh, is this the one where um, at one point Margaret of Anjou throws her, her hood over her shoulder and is like, hear me, and then walks around the room with a mirror and starts cursing them? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that one. And it's, it's clear that the other characters do not really want to be with Richard. Yeah. And I mean, there is no love lost there in the play, too. That's pretty clear. Mm. But the only reason that works in the play is that he's meant to be the kind of innocent, sweet, gentle Richard when he's not in battle. So, you know, they don't like him, but how could you hurt someone so sweet and kind kind of idea? Okay. Which is why when the murderers go to see his brother George in prison to kill him and he says, go to my brother Richard, he'll pay you better for my life than my brother Edward will for my death. And they go, <laughs> it's Richard who's having you killed. That's why it's a shock, because he's not supposed to believe that his sweet brother could ever do that to him. Mm, that makes sense. But Richard's talking to him kind of like, oh, no, you're going to the tower. Oh, dear. And it's it's pretty <laughs> clear he wants him there. Yeah, that makes sense to me. As a non-expert, that seems like a very reasonable criticism. That, I must be, is the kind of a criticism I have of a lot of adaptations is they don't, I don't find there's enough separation between the self he reflects to the audience and the self he reflects to the character. So he just kind of seems villainous when half the fun comes from the fact that the audience gets to see the kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge side of it. And everyone else sees this very different person. So he's almost kind of, if you've seen Game of Thrones, Littlefinger is kind of a good comparison to him. Someone who... No, everyone kind of overlooks and no one thinks is any real threat, but who plays the strings of politics extremely well. And I just didn't find this Richard played the strings at all. There was one scene, which I think particularly exemplified that. It's where uh, the two young princes, the ones that are eventually princes in the tower, he's bringing them to the throne. He's about to start his coup. And he's got Edward is up there checking out the throne. And then the young Prince Richard is talking to Richard of Gloucester. This is kind of Richard III. And he says, uncle, give me your dagger. And he's playing around with his dagger. And Richard seems to be playing along with him, kind of throwing exasperated looks at the other other adults there, but playing along with the kid, who then does a very offensive kind of rendition of how Richard walks with his shoulder and everything. And, you know, it, uh, one way to play that, to be politically savvy, is to laugh it off with the kid and, and pretend like, oh, it's the good sport, uncle. You don't have to worry about me because otherwise they're going to think you hate them. And in this play, he throws a full or in this adaptation, he throws a full hissy fit. Mm-hmm. he yanks the dagger back from the young boy he puts it away he glowers at him it's very clear that he's a threat to them which not a i don't know that doesn't to me that doesn't make sense with the progression of the play and the fact that he's meant to be someone who's very very good at playing the game right he just seemed very overt with his emotions hmm. that makes sense that makes sense to me i think that holds up also i have not watched game of thrones and ah. i thought Littlefinger was a james bond villain ah so... <laughs> that'd be a good name for a james bond villain honestly I was. I think I was just thinking of Goldfinger. Ah, uh, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> so, overall, from the standpoint of a historian, mm-hmm. specifically from a historian, I mean, like, also, if you want as a fan, but <laughs> sure. as a historian, what do you like best about Richard III? 
And I know some people are not going to like the idea that I'm asking you if you would change something <laughs> about Shakespeare. But if you could change something about Richard III mm-hmm. for the benefit of knowledge about history, mm-hmm. what would you change about it? Interesting. When you say what I like about Richard III, do you mean the figure or the play? I think I mean the the play, but, the play. You, you know, take it as you will. Yeah. I mean, the, this has always been my favorite Shakespeare play. I think just because... Some of the things we've talked about, I mean, we have a main villain, kind of an an archetypal villain, but also kind of a weird anti-villain at the same time, mm-hmm. right? Who gives you, you kind of cheer for him a little bit before he starts getting really, really violent about it. And it's, it's just such a nuanced portrayal. And you see somebody dealing with a lot of self-hatred, with a lot of, of low self-esteem and low self-worth, and only finds it through violence. And that's such a nuanced way to address this. And at the same time, this is something that might have been within living memory for someone if they'd lived a very long time or within you would have maybe met someone who lived. It's just such an interesting time period to write about. Mm-hmm. And I think it, what it really, really does is it just throws into full light the importance that narrative has in history, mm-hmm. which is something a lot of people comment on when they're learning history growing up, right? It's just names and facts and dates. It's it's not interesting. It's dry. That's the kind of something you hear a lot right, from people growing up. But mm-hmm. It's, it's it's really, it's story. I mean, you have these people's lives kind of spread out, written before you, and parts of it are lost and part of it we'll never hear about again. The emotions are lost forever. As much as we try to study them, we can only get close. And to me, that's fascinating. And this is why I think, I mean, I'm leading a course at the moment on video games and medieval history. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I, I mean, I love it. And this is partly like I've heard from my students sometimes that you know, they were surprised to see the course running or people have, were really excited about it. They never heard of anything like this before. But this is partly why I wanted to do this because the narratives we tell ourselves about our past are just so much more effective than lists of names and dates, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing with, with Richard III on stage, right? This is the story. This is the narrative that came down about him. And we remember it. We're interested in it because it's so compelling. Right. And I think it really just reinforces how much we need to be aware of the narratives that we are ingesting through media through television books video games that we can't just say oh it's fiction we can write it off you have to be aware of the fact that it's still teaching you something at the same time it's still embedding ideas at the same time i think that's true and i yeah definitely and i think people really for better or for worse understand history a lot of the time through either fictional characters or like Mm -hmm. real historical figures which Richard III, as we're talking about, you know, there's both the historical figure, Richard III, and the fictional character, Richard yes, III. Yeah. But I think if you asked a lot of people, tell me about medieval politics, medieval English politics, they would say, like, oh, I don't I don't know anything about that, really. Mm-hmm. But if you ask them, like, tell me something about Richard III, I think they could tell you, isn't that the guy who <laughs> murdered his way to be king? Yeah, sort exactly. Of thing. And I feel like, like I was saying earlier, I think the the implicit lesson there is something about medieval politics, that that's how medieval politics works. And that's a thing people feel like they know mm-hmm. based on this play or just what they've read on Wikipedia about the Tower of London or whatever. Yeah, or like the governmental sites and things like that, that, you know, the, the kind of heritage sites that are now really, really popular. Yes. They're going to highlight what's interesting, right? And what's interesting is what can be narrativized and that just kind of perpetuates itself. Mm-hmm. Which is good in some ways and then can be very dangerous in others. So it's always, you know, being critically aware of what you're reading is, of course, the most important thing. Right. Yeah, I definitely think people people want to understand, you often want to understand history as a story. Yeah, because in, in many ways it is, right? It's 
Mm-hmm. It's I think because the, the essence of a story, I mean, other than having a plot that you can follow, which history, of course, isn't plotted, so so that doesn't that doesn't happen. But there are characters and there are motivations and emotions and there are things people find important that we today would find ridiculous and vice versa. And it's just real and it's messy and it's human. And there's no way to try to make that logical, really. If you try to remove emotion from it and the kind of essence of, of story and storytelling from it, you lose a lot of what it means to be human, I think. And then you lose, you don't get a full picture of the history. Hmm. But also to answer your, your second question about Shakespeare, I mean, I love the play, but I think the one thing I would change if I could would be adding, and, I, and this is a, a change that I know probably couldn't have happened at the time, which is, well, I'll go to that one. But I would love to add a little bit more time for Anne, for Richard's wife in the play. Hmm. And it probably couldn't have happened at the time because, you know, you'd have to hire younger male actors to play the female roles and it's harder. So you know, fewer lines for them so they don't have to speak quite as much and the younger actors don't have to be, uh, they don't have to be found. But she's just fascinating because there's that scene where Richard gets her to, to agree to marry him and there's some coercion involved, of course. But Everyone knows she hates him, right? He's murdered her beloved husband. She could have easily, after the fact, been like, you know what? No, no, he never proposed to me. That Why would I accept him? And she could have found a way out of it. But she marries him. And then eventually, you know, she has a few lines. She eventually seems to regret it. And then she's killed off. But there's, I don't know, there's a lot there. I mean, what was it like to be married to someone going through all of that? What was her experience like? What Did she take part in it at all? Or did she decide to just kind of remove herself? Why would she even have gone through with it in the first place. Like there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot more that I think could be explored there, which could be really interesting, but uh, maybe that's another play or a modern novel yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. You could write like a spinoff, a spinoff play. That'd be pretty good. I mean, I, I think that's a good idea. I watching the play did not feel like I understood that character. <laughs> like, I don't think No, she's barely there. Yeah. I, I felt like I was missing something. I'm like, why would you marry him if mm-hmm. he killed your husband and you clearly detest him? Yeah. yeah, I didn't get it. They're an interesting pair in history because they've been the subject, I think, in modern uh, literature of a few different love stories. Even at the time, actually, to some extent. So she was married to the kind of heir apparent on the Lancastrian side who was then killed in battle. And then there was a huge dispute over the land that she was going to inherit because she was supposed to marry Richard before there was a huge revolt and she was taken off to marry somewhere else, someone else. And they grew up in the same household for a number of years. They might, have, they might have already known each other at that point. And then his brother George, who was married to her sister Isabel, took, took control of her basically and had her living with them while this land dispute was happening. And then Chronicles at the time, basically, a few of them say that George hid her in, in the city as a cook, as like a, a kitchen maid, basically. And that Richard went and rescued her and brought her to sanctuary. Then they got married after that. I do believe he did take her to sanctuary one way or another. And then she chose to leave and marry him. Is what I remember reading from history. But there's a lot of debates about how that happened. And it's a very kind of almost Arthurian style love story. Hmm. Which is always interesting when you see the legacy that Richard III has. To have that also associated with him. Which is much more about kind of honor and chivalry. That is interesting. But yeah, she's an interesting figure. Hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to, to say about... Richard III that we didn't get to? Well, there's a lot to read. Mm-hmm. There's, and there's still a lot being written. I mean, he's just such a, a popular figure for so many years. Some books, like some very modern scholarship, does more of a kind of unbiased, non-judgmental point of view. Some still have very strong opinions of him and make that clear in the text. Like, they hate him sometimes. Uh, and some really love him. So I would just, I guess my suggestion, if you want to go and read more about Richard III, 
check and see if you can find some sources that don't seem to either adore or despise him because then you're going to get mm-hmm. more of a kind of not no one really in my opinion no one is ever truly neutral but you're going to get more of a balanced perspective if someone clearly isn't going into it thinking this figure is awful or amazing right and there are a few of them out there i think charles ross actually does a really good a really good job with his he describes richard as more of a product of his time which was very brutal and bloodthirsty and violent mm. not to say that he was all of those things but that was what the time the time kind of generated some of those things in people so he does more of a job of looking at richard as a product of his own time period so i definitely recommend him cool yeah i can i can put his work in the podcast description if people want to check it out i believe rosemary horrocks is also another good a good, a good author about richard iii as well she does a lot with the primary sources which is fantastic oh awesome yeah okay i'll, I'll add that too mm. cool this has been really fun. Yeah, it's been great. And it's been really great talking to you about this play. Do you have anything that you'd like to share with the audience about where they can find what you're working on? Yeah, I mean, if you would like to follow me on Twitter, I am on Twitter at, at writingmedieval, one word. And uh, my website is www.arianaellis.com. And yeah, some of my work is on there. I do some, I do a lot of digital work. So I do some kind of text-based video games. And if you're interested, there's some links on my website as well. But did you, do you make? I do using do Twine, make- yeah. That's so cool. It's I, I I'm love gonna go that. play your video game. Oh, awesome! <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a step by step one there, as if you lived during the Black Death in Florence, and you kind of wake up as both a a doctor and a tailor. So you can go and check check that out if you're interested. Yeah. Oh wow, that sounds really cool, and it sounds like a cool fit with your video game course as well. That's yes, that's going to be involved in one of the lessons that's upcoming. Right. <laughs> so I'm very excited to see how the class responds to that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This was fantastic. That's it for today's interview. Thanks for listening, and a big thank you to Ariana for joining me. Off Campus History is on all the major podcast apps, so subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review or tell someone about the show. It really makes a big difference. And also, I post some pictures related to each episode on Facebook and Instagram, so if you'd like to check those out, be sure to follow the show there as well. If you're a fellow historian who's interested in being a future guest on the show, send me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com. And I'd also love to hear other people's comments on the show, too. Artwork for the podcast was made by Nefkaria, and the music was made by Nella Ruiz. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time for some more Off Campus History. (laughs) 